The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 3, The Classical World, Episode 64A, The Evolution of Religion. The history of religion is the history of humankind's desire to make sense of its own existence. It is the history of humankind's quest to understand spirituality, or the existence of influences that cannot be seen with the eye, or what we may call the supernatural. For as long as there has been human consciousness, it seems that there has always been religion. So we can argue that while we are human, we have religion. It is a part of what makes us human. Prehistoric graves contain artefacts that would have practical value in everyday life, but no practical value in a dead person's grave. So the concept of an afterlife surely existed in the minds of those people. The act of burying the human body itself seems quite bizarre. Surely there is no practical value in wasting time burying bodies, when bodies can be just left to decay in the open to become carrion for other animals, unless there was a spiritual reason. Maybe early humans did not believe that death was final, or believed that human mind and human soul could exist without the human body. Maybe early humans with the same cognitive ability as us here today could not accept that death was final, refusing to believe that their companions that they had developed a strong social bond with were now gone forever. The presence of animal skulls in graves suggests by their nature that they were deliberately placed and it is impossible to tell whether the animal was long deceased when placed there or whether it was deliberately killed in order to be there. We only say this because animal sacrifices were evidently part of human religious ritual at a later time, so we judge what our distant ancestors did by the behaviours of our more modern ancestors. In much of our interpretation of human behaviours of long ago, we compare it to similar behaviours of more modern times when such behaviours and their reasoning were documented, so that we may build a stronger suggestion about the more distant past. Prehistoric art, such as carved figurines that have anthropomorphic features, for example a human body with an animal's head, demonstrate a supernatural being that could hold some spiritual significance to the human that carved it. But we can feel confident that no creature ever existed. So who was this creature and why were they significant to its creator? 
we also discover anthropomorphic beings painted on the walls of caves, with the paintings dating back tens of thousands of years into human history. The reasons why humans did all of these things is not known to this day, but that doesn't mean that we cannot make some educated guesses. Animism Many experts believe that prehistoric humans believed in animism, and the fact that ritual burials contain artefacts and sacrificial objects point towards this. Animism is the belief that the body contains a soul that can exist independently from the human body and can exist within something else, whether it be other animals, trees, mountains and even objects of the sky. It maintains that anything can have a spiritual soul. These souls would experience emotion, so theoretically you could upset the stream that provides you with water if you are inconsiderate of its needs. The concept of prehistoric animism was derived from the work of the British anthropologist Sir Edward Tyler in his 1871 publication called Primitive Culture, in which he drew upon the discoveries of explorers who had met tribes in the world that believed in animism, and so it was credible as a possibility for the prehistoric tribes in respect of their discovered traditions. The British professor Robin Dunbar, a professor of evolutionary psychology, compares this to the modern concept of wishing wells, where we believe that by throwing a coin into the well, the well will grant us a wish, as if the well has a will of its own and a desire to affect the existence of someone or something else. The fact that one can commit an act which may affect the mood of another object led humankind to go to great lengths to influence the soul of an object. Elaborate ceremonies were conducted in a desperate attempt to gather the attention of a spiritual essence and so it would be natural for humankind to believe that good behaviour could encourage good fortune. So for example, if there was a spirit who existed in the sky, then a great ceremony could be organised to please that spirit into providing favourable weather. So this could be compared to the Native American tribes attempting to influence weather patterns by performing rain dances. If rain dances brought rain, then this tells us that we believe that there is a spirit in the sky that is impressed enough by the dance to provide the rain that is desired. Shamanism If we assume that rituals may or may not work, then this would leave humankind questioning whether they performed the right ceremonies in the right way, and there would not be any firm guidance other than trial and error. We can safely assume that not every rain dance guaranteed rain, so the reaction to a failed rain dance may result in a number of conclusions that could suggest that the rain deity was not impressed by the dance or not in favour of the individuals due to other misdemeanours. Possibly the rain deity was favouring someone else because they deserved rain more than you. 
if there was anybody who could provide the correct answer to the question and provide a solution to the problem, then they would surely be revered within their tribe. If one of your tribe was able to prove that they had a special ability to communicate with the spirit world and influence it positively, then that individual would have a privileged position within the tribe. This is where the concept of the shaman comes from, with the shaman being the one who knows. A shaman is thought to have taken on anthropomorphic forms by wearing animal masks and performing ritual dances while entering into trance-like states in a bid to connect with the spirit's world. For example, if the tribe were hoping for a successful day of hunting, then the shaman may perform a dance to influence the appropriate spirits. A shaman may have been born with the gift of communicating with spirits or may have been taught how to communicate with spirits. A shaman may have also had the ability to heal from illness. The illness, of course, would be controlled by spirits, so it would make sense for the shaman to be able to influence the spirits. When we see cave paintings of prominent anthropomorphic creatures, we could suggest that these creatures represent shamans. Ancestor Worship With the Neolithic Revolution came agriculture, and with agriculture came settlement. At the Neolithic village of Çatalhöyük in the modern country of Turkey, many residences were constructed side by side, and underneath the floors of these settlements were buried the dead, as we discovered in the episode about the first villages in the prehistoric volume. We can only think that by burying the dead under the floor that there must have been a spiritual reason, as there can be no practical reason. Possibly by burying the dead under your floor, you may have believed that the spirit of the deceased person would protect your home from enemy spirits. Important individuals may have been buried in dedicated grave spots and they could be accompanied by jewellery, weapons and trinkets, as well as sacrificed animals and even sacrificed humans. So the human feeling of necessity for ceremony was as strong as ever. In order to guarantee a successful harvest, humans and animals may have been sacrificed to the spirits of the earth, and ritual cannibalism may have taken place to transfer strong spirits from one individual to another. These can all be referred to as forms of ancestor worship, or manism as it is otherwise referred. Ceremonial sites such as Gebekli Tepe and Stonehenge were seemingly erected for ceremonial use, as they had no sign of human residency. It has been speculated that sites like these could have been constructed for ancestor worship, but it is also very interesting to note that many megalithic sites such as these were deliberately aligned according to the movements of the sun in the sky. Agriculture The Neolithic Revolution brought along agriculture, and in the same way that the pre-Neolithic shamans believed that they could influence the fortune of the hunt, 
farmers believed that they could influence the fortune of the agricultural yield, which was never a foregone conclusion. A strong yield could guarantee to support a large community throughout the winter months. If there was any kind of animistic feelings within humans after the Neolithic Revolution, then it would be very natural for them to believe that by pleasing the spirit that could influence the agricultural yield, that the yield would be plentiful. A farmer might consider that he has to regard multiple spirits when choosing his actions, so he may need to appeal to the spirit of the earth, the spirit of the sun, and the spirit of the rain. He would be unlikely to appeal to the spirit of the mountain, for example, with the mountain having little bearing on agricultural yield, so certain spirits would develop more value than others. Human burials could have been seen as offerings to the earth, and we can also see great offerings to the ground, such as bronze swords, abandoned to the earth and its spirits in the strong hope that it would please the spirit. The sacrifices of both humans and animals would have also been seen as offerings to the spirits. Sacrifices were not just isolated to one society. It would be found in both Europe and Mesoamerica, so we can suggest that this behaviour was an inevitable natural development. With the presence of animistic spirits, some becoming more worshipped than others, came the concept of the pantheon of deities, much more resemblant of polytheistic paganism. The shaman would make way for a connecting influence more like a modern priest acting as the bridge between society and the deities. Elaborate buildings and complexes within large settlements would take the place of spiritual megalithic sites and these buildings would be somewhere that members of the society could honour deities, whether they be deities of everyday aspects or deities that represented ancestors. Therefore we can describe these as some of the earliest temples. Some of these deities would be utilised as tutelary deities, which effectively meant that they were designated to be the protectors of the city in question. Great temples would be built in dedication to the tutelary deities in their city of honour. The notion of ancestor worship, bonding bloodlines, could now be extended to contain a wider family, with all the residents of a particular city all working together to please their tutelary deities and the monarchs of these cities happy to encourage the promotion of the tutelary deity in order to keep his people compliant with his own will and loyalty to the city. Monarchs could use deities in this sense to gain obedience. For example, large building projects could be organised far more effectively if everyone believed that they were working for the pleasure of the deity rather than for the monarch who some may have felt indifferent about. The temples would act as centres for donations to the tutelary deity, such as agricultural yield from the farmers of the city. Donations to the temple would have brought wealth to the priestly class and further encouraged a widening of the gap between 
the elites and the other classes. The Sky Father When analysing many languages of the modern world, particularly of Europe and areas of Southwest Asia, linguistic experts have determined that there was an ancient but unknown language called Proto-Indo-European that was the ancestor of the Germanic, Celtic, Italic and Indo-Iranian languages, among others. The oldest known religious scriptures of a significant standing that relate to the global migrations of these Indo-European language speakers are the Vedic scriptures, the oldest of which is the Rig Veda, may be written as long ago as three and a half millenniums. The Vedic scriptures are considered to be within the origins of Hinduism. The Vedas further humanised the spirit deities that are believed by many experts to have existed in the Proto-Indo-European speaking cultures that are believed to have existed over a thousand years previous. The parents of the gods in the Rig Veda are the sky deity Diyosh and his consort, the earth deity Prithvi. They are also referred to as Diyosh Peter and Priti Mata, an acknowledgement of their role as mother and father of the Vedic pantheon of gods. The Indo-European link to the words father and mother is clear. There are strong linguistic links to the paternal god of the ancient Greek pantheon, Zeus, another figure whose image has been humanised both visually and characteristically. Zeus is the sky deity of the Greek pantheon, but also the god of thunder. The ancient Albanian equivalent is the similarly named sky and lightning god, Zoiz. Roman culture was heavily influenced by ancient Greek culture and the Roman equivalent, Jupiter, was syncretised with the Celtic god of thunder, Taranis, who is linked to the cognate Germanic god of thunder and lightning, Thor. So we can clearly recognise a strong humanisation of spirits and deities that were worshipped by prehistoric peoples. Ancient cultures not linked to Indo-European cultures include the ancient Egyptians and the ancient Mesopotamians. Both the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians recognise their own pantheon of deities. Mesopotamian and Indo-European influence may have been at play in influencing the religious nature of the ancient Canaanites of the Levant and in turn the Abrahamic religions. The Axial Age The term Axial Age was first coined by the German psychiatrist Karl Jaspers, born in 1883. The Axial Age refers loosely to a period during the middle of the first millennium BCE when some of the most prominent religious movements of today's world emerged. The rise of the Persians from their Indo-Iranian ancestry saw the rise of Zoroastrianism. The religious concept of Buddhism emerged in India from the lifetime of the Buddha. The Chinese philosopher Confucius began teaching his system of thought which became known as Confucianism. The concept of Israelite 
monotheism became more widely known, particularly during the time of the Babylonian captivity of the Jews. The rise of ancient Greece brought with it the rise of the knowledge of the pantheon of Olympian Greek gods, although there are little remnants of this having any significant importance in today's world. All of these major religious movements emerged at a similar time. Much is speculated about the Axial Age, with some experts suggesting that it has little or no significance at all and it is just more of a coincidence that these religious movements all prospered at the same time. So the ancient Greek religion no longer exists, while Zoroastrianism has very little presence in today's world. Buddhism and Confucianism are not based on idol or deity worship, so can they truly be referred to as religions when compared to Judaism? However, the period of the Iron Age represents a period of relative prosperity in many areas of the world, and I wonder if this could be a factor. Human nature is to chase wealth and power, and this would lead to the construction of cities as the most powerful leaders look to create a hub of defensible power. However, in an environment where pure survival and the need or ability to pursue wealth was not a basic necessity, it allowed humans to become more reflective about their existence. The requirement for people living within an urban environment to cooperate would have been the basis for there being more compassion between residents as the bond of families and tribes would be extended to a larger group of people. The requirement to be a good neighbour was more important as people looked to their neighbours for support more than ever, whether they be farmers, builders, bakers or doctors. So people were asking the question more than ever, what can I do to be a better person? People began to look to their deities for guidance as opposed to instruction. And in the absence of deities and their earthly representatives such as priests, they would look to their wisest teachers from within their group for their philosophies. People were punished harshly for their crimes and even those who were associated could be punished harshly even without committing an act and this is very apparent in such documents as the Code of Hammurabi. Now, humankind would be looking to exercise forgiveness. Human sacrifice would begin to be seen as barbaric and it was much more important to carry out acts of compassion or personal self-sacrifices than to make physical sacrifices of objects and other living beings. I must stress that this is my own personal feeling about the concept called the Axial Age, based on my very distant overview. It could be suggested that the lack of advancement in society in the Americas is why we don't see anything that relates to the Axial Age there at this time. Universalization. The human being is a very instinctively tribal being. If we look back at our beginnings, then the tribal unit may have been around 30 individuals who cooperated to look after one another. This is not unusual in the animal kingdom and is called sociality. 
we see the safety in numbers mentality among many species of mammals, birds, fish and insects. The human tribal instinct is certainly not unusual or unique in the animal kingdom. One thing that is far more unusual is the human ability to universalise or to extend their reach of influence. One way they did this is through trade. A dependency between one group of people on another through trade of essential items empowered one set of people over another set. Another way they did this is through conquest. Sets of people would become dependent on others due to their subjugation, controlling their abilities and therefore guaranteeing their dependence and compliance. Then came religion or ideology, something that one might suggest to be a psychological conquest or the fear that spiritual non-compliance would result in negative consequences. However, universality could equally be looked at in a positive manner, with that human tribal nature gaining comfort from the feeling of belonging to a religious order or the family of a god. Certainly during the time after the Axial Age, secular leaders would have used the powerful force of religion to entice the population under their control to behave at their will. Before the age of printing, something that enabled more people to educate themselves, they would be at the mercy of the leaders who would tell them whatever they wanted them to believe. The population would believe that if they did not conform to the social order, that they would be acting outside the boundaries of the divine order and risking their future fortunes. If the secular ruler promised his population that conformity to the social order would result in the guarantee of a place in paradise in the afterlife, then this may encourage members of the population to lay down their lives in defence of the city. So in this case, the universalism of religion would work hand in hand with the universalism of imperialism. Zoroastrianism prospered as the state religion of the great Persian empires, from the Achaemenids all the way through to the Sasanians, but it didn't prosper universally in the same way that Christianity did after being accepted as the state religion of the Roman Empire. Most Persian Zoroastrians converted to Islam after their lands were obtained by the Arab caliphates from the Arabian Peninsula. Islam itself spread very rapidly as the Arab caliphates spread their imperial influence throughout the southern coasts of the Mediterranean Sea and the Middle East. Going back to the universalism of trade, we can see how the Indian subcontinent philosophy of Buddhism rapidly spread along the Silk Road to China. The global spread of world religions was caused by pressures in which religion was a core part of the issue. Islamified nations did not create the barrier between eastern and western ends of the Silk Roads. This happened before the proliferation of both Christianity and Islam. When the Silk Road was being established, 
it was the pagan Roman Empire in the West, attempting to establish a trade route with the Taoist Han China Empire in the East. It would be the Zoroastrian Persians that would look to prevent this trade route from freely existing. As Europe Christianised and the Middle East Islamified, the desire to stop Western trade with the East was still as important as ever for the nations in the Middle. By the end of the Middle Ages, a whole host of Christian nations in Europe were trying to break down the Islamic nations of the Middle East and Eurasia in order to reach the Chinese empires in the East. The leaders of both the Christian nations and the Islamic nations used their state religions to rally support and dedication from their population and this intensified during the Age of the Crusades. The tension over universalising trade routes continued beyond the Age of the Crusades and into the rise of the Ottoman Empire, an Islamic empire who were keen to continue making European trade with the Far East as troublesome as possible. The best alternative to land blockades was always to take to the seas, and had the Suez Canal route been open and not in anti-European hands, then Christian nation merchants would have surely taken this option. Instead, they were forced to seek alternative routes to the Far East, and this was during the Age of Exploration, where seafaring had advanced significantly so that travel was not just restricted to riverways, inland seas and coastlines. Now seafarers braved the ocean waters of the vast oceans and attempted to find an alternative means by which to reach the Far East. This would involve travelling westwards into the unknown, working on the assumption that the world was globe-shaped. It would also involve taking on the very unnavigable icy waters beyond Scandinavia to the north of the Russian mainland. All this to avoid the highly competitive and dangerous waterways via the Cape of Good Hope taking Europeans around the entire continent of Africa. It was due to these highly ambitious journeys that Christianity was transported around the world and especially within the comparatively archaic cultures of the sparsely populated lands of the Americas and Australia where it flourished. Of course, the story of the world's religions is very profound and diverse and the list of religious orders and sects within the wider global movements is too extensive to list in this podcast episode. Even within Christianity, the amount of different methods of observance is absolutely mind-boggling. The reality of religion is that it defines us as human beings and human history is also the history of religion. The word religion and the names of religious movements are often used very critically, with many people blaming many problems that exist in today's world on religion. Religion really isn't the problem, because religion existed long before wars centred on religion. Religion is purely an acknowledgement of our conscious awareness of our own vulnerable mortality, but this conscious awareness has been exploited by many over the years in order to threaten others into subservience. What better way to frighten someone 
than by threatening the very thing that helps them to make sense of their own mortality. The true culprit is not religion, but those who use religion as a political weapon. This episode of the History of the World podcast was recorded in May of 2023. Uh, But if you want to move on to the next episode in the chronological story, that will be episode 65, uh, where we visit ancient China and explore the Zhou dynasty. And this episode was recorded back in April of 2021. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast. And it was a special episode. Uh, It was commissioned by the History of the World podcast Illuminati member, Amardeep Dagar. So thank you, Amardeep, and I hope you enjoyed your episode, The Evolution of Religion. Now, If you want to be a History of the World podcast Illuminati member, then simply go to the Patreon link at the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and sign up to make a monthly contribution and you may be able to uh, qualify for you to commission your own episode exactly like Amardeep did this week. So um, go along there now. We have a new member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati to welcome this week and it's Michael Martirana. So thank you Michael and welcome to the History of the World podcast Illuminati. You do qualify for gifts as well so we've dispatched a number of gifts already this year. There's still some more to come Um, so uh, go along to Patreon and uh, check out what you could earn. Listener messages and reviews. This week we got a message uh, from uh, Robert Fowler and he's just put, uh, your last episode, The Unscripted, had three commercials woven into it. Is this a new normal? Is the podcaster taking advantage of you? Let let us know so we can change the podcaster site. Well, we're actually, we've been given a very good opportunity uh, by Spotify And we're now being sponsored by advertisers, which uh, is a good thing for the future of the podcast. So it enables me to um, to keep this as a free resource and also to, um, you know, invest more in the future of the project. So um, I've. The one thing I have been very careful to do, and and, and a lot of you will experience uh, an advertisement at the beginning of the episode, but I am looking to avoid at all costs having advertisements in in the middle of the podcast. So, like when the information is uh, is sort of being conveyed, and uh, when when the bulk part of the information of the podcast before we do this section at the end. I've endeavoured to never get that interrupted by adverts. So um, that was one thing I did seriously want to preserve because I think um, a lot of people find adverts quite annoying. So uh, the, if I can limit the the manner in which that, that could be the case, um, then that, that surely is beneficial as well. But yes, uh, we've, we've been given this great opportunity and it will uh, undoubtedly 
helped me to to invest more into the project and uh you know let's hope it's uh let's hope it's a, a good thing for the future and and keeps the podcast free of charge so I think it's a positive step but if any of you have any feedback I'd be very very interested to hear from you especially if you're hearing adverts that maybe you, you think don't belong on a podcast such as this you know the, the type of advert perhaps yeah perhaps you could drop me a line and, and let me know anyway uh, we did get one reviewed this week from Bronze Aged Man who's put a gem as a fan of history, particularly the ancient era. This is a great listen. Chris has an easygoing delivery, but at the same time, it's informative and entertaining. I highly recommend this podcast to anyone interested in a broad range of history topics in a chronological order. I'm only just finishing volume two, but really looking forward to seeing where this goes. Well, thank you very much, Bronze Aged Man. The next, um, the next special episode will be uh, for David Hannon, and he's requested a podcast on the Emirate of Granada. And uh, what that, the Emirate of Granada, we go back to the days of the Reconquista and the final years of the Reconquista when uh, the, uh, the Castilians and the Aragonese were finally trying to push uh, the last Islamic uh, nations out of the Iberian Peninsula and the last sort of bastion of, of Islamic uh, presence was the Emirate of Granada. And so next, uh, the next special episode will be, uh, will be on that very subject, the, the, the Emirate of Granada, what was it and uh, what happened to it? Uh, and that will be an episode for the History of the World podcast Illuminati member, David Hannon. Uh, but apart from that, uh, thanks for listening. If you want to know more about what went into this week's episode, then there will be a special episode uh, for Patreons, um, which you can either access uh, by being a subscriber to the podcast on Spotify or by uh, going to the Patreon website and um, you can get access to the audio feed there as well. So uh, I strongly recommend that this week because there was uh, so many resources that I had to sort of pull from. So um, some very um, some very good books that I had to sort of refer to to get some good information and a good timeline. So uh, I, I would recommend that if you found this week's episode interesting. Uh, but apart from that, that's all for this week. And thanks very much for listening. And until next time, be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast.com at mail.com and don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.